0: Hello, everyone, and you're very welcome to The Contact Book. Now, this is a show like no other, because this is where our guests put their contact books and their trust and their phone in my hands. And we're going to look back at their life and their times with a bit of help with those who know them best. And as we delve into their phones to hear the stories, uh, we're going to hear them from all sides. And it's kind of enlightening, it's heartwarming, it's awkward at times. And, of course, it is funny and unpredictable. So it's really good to have you with us. I am Craig Doyle, and this is The Contact Book. So... The guest for the final episode of this series of The Contact Book, I will admit, is a very old and good friend of mine. And I want to keep him to the very end because his stories are brilliant and he's such a charismatic character. And I knew he'd love this. He loves to chat about the past and he's got lots and lots of friends. So to hear and earwig those conversations is going to be great fun for all of you. He played hooker for um, his beloved Gary Owen and Munster and Harlequins in the Gallagher Premiership, Ireland, of course, and the British and Irish Lions. But he is one of those players, like so many on the contact book, that changed the game, changed the way their position was viewed, how it was played. He certainly did that he was a difficult man to miss. A very individual look is how I described it. Put it this way, his nickname was the Raging Potato. But he is one of the finest players to ever have played the game and one of the greatest friends you could ever have. Would you please welcome to the contact book, Mr Keith Wood. Woody, how are you?
1: Craig, I'm great, thank you. I find it very hard. I blushed slightly with that introduction. Um, It's a little bit awkward is the word you mentioned. I'm feeling nervous for the simple fact of... Giving you over my phone is, uh, I think, a foolhardy act on my behalf. And I'm a little bit worried about who you're going to delve into it. But uh, we hope for a bit of fun with it, too. And we have been friends for a long time. We spent a long time in the different studios of the BBC over the years. And we had a lot of fun with that, too, which is which is nice. So I'm delighted to be on.
0: Well, I do remember many years ago, you and I, it was one of my first games anchoring for the BBC, uh, and it was so cold. I underdressed. I went for style ahead of kind of sensible clothing. And you had a massive big coat on, a big kind of duvet jacket. And you actually sat behind me and you wrapped the coat around me and you undid the middle button. It was just my head popping out of the middle of your coat like a little joey in a kangaroo's pouch do you remember it
1: I'm slightly disappointed there was no photograph taken of that because it had to be one of the stranger things to be seen on the side of a field listen I had days in the BBC where I wore two hats because my head got so cold of course the lack of hair it was minus nine in the stadium in Paris at one stage and we'd someone from the BBC saying you can't wear that jacket because it's branded I said, I either die on air or I wear this jacket. But <laughs> I believed in being very well prepared. And I always had a lot of things to put on because it's it's freezing standing up. I know it sounds like a, a, a strange thing to complain about as a front row forward, but I feel the cold. And you definitely dressed for fashion. I mean, you didn't <laughs> understand practicality in any of your career, I have to
0: say. <laughs> no. And I continue to follow that line of thought. Now, in the contact book, we've often kind of gone chronologically and we've started with our guests and talked about their school days and, and worked our way through. But in researching this interview, I started looking back at the Lions tour of 97 and it was a hugely significant Lions tour in South Africa. It was a series win, but also it gave birth to the first behind the scenes video and film about a tour. And we saw everything. It was called Living with the Lions. And Martin Johnson was the captain on that tour. But you and your experience and how vocal you are meant you played a huge role in it too. And I'll never forget the dressing room before the second test. And it was a vital second test because it was a test you won and you won the test series then against South Africa. But I'll never forget the sounds from the dressing room and players throwing up and the speeches and the passion and the tears. Um, I I watched it again and I I have to say I was welling up watching it. It was an incredible moment, really, for the world to see that, wasn't
1: it? Well, for me, it was, it was unusual. So, um, look, I grew up with the idea of the Lions. My dad toured with the Lions in 59 and and he'd passed away long before I played rugby. So he never got to see me play. But the, the memory of the Lions was something there. I'm a bit of a keen history buff as well. And I was interested in looking at all the different parts of it. But that tour and the response to the video of that tour was quite unusual. So I didn't speak to camera on that you know, to that camera crew over that whole tour. And yet when the video came out, I was there in an awful lot of it. And you kind of forget they're there. And it was incredibly natural for that reason. And the game had only just become professional. And we didn't really know what we were doing in a lot of respects. And we were kids. I was 25 look I'm a fan as well but when you looked around the first team meeting and you look at Martin Johnson over there and Ian Evans and Delalio and guys from rugby league and suddenly you say oh my god this is something very very special we weren't winning with Ireland and we weren't getting it much of a chance but winning with Ireland and I remember going into that room saying oh my god we can win this time uh, we can definitely win with this team even though everything is against us and I just wanted to be part of the test team and the standards that the the other players, the, the British players in the British and Irish lines, some of the standards that they trained at were was an eye opener for me and it changed my outlook on the game. And I would have said I had a good work ethic, but this was something different. And the key part for 97 was just to be a sponge for how everybody did everything or, or could do anything or how they tried to see the game. And for me, it changed how I played rugby. And look, I, I looked at the video for the first time properly in the first lockdown. And I wow. waited that long to do it. And I'd watched a bit of it when it came out first, but I tend not to look too to back to I like to remember my memories as opposed to look at images. And yeah, it was it was a, an amazing time. And we won. And actually, that's the reason it's amazing, is we were the underdogs and we got to get the win.
0: I never forget the look on on Martin Johnson's face in that that changing room. And when I watched the video back, I just thought, how could they ever have lost with him in there? I mean, he's such a legend of the game. I know you have his number in your contact book and... I'd love us to get him on because this man when it comes to rugby he's the rugby player's favourite player I think all he achieved with the Leicester Tigers and domestically and in Europe with England of course and then to captain that successful Lions tour in 97. Can we give Jono a buzz? Let's give Martin Johnson a buzz. Absolutely. Give him give him a tinkle. Let's give him a tinkle. He might be out on his bike. Apparently he's an absolute animal on the bike these days. He's half the size he used to be. And he's still huge.
2: Hello,
0: Martin Johnson Craig Doyle here. On the contact book with your old pal Keith Wood alongside me. How are you, Jono? Yeah, good. You guys all right? We're really good. Yeah, and we're delighted you answered. We weren't sure whether you're out in your bike, putting in the miles today or not.
3: It was in the offering this morning, but we've had a lot of snow here. It's I thought discretion was a better part this morning (laughs) and didn't go out.
1: I reckon, Jono, if you fell off the bike, you'd do more damage to the road than the road would do to you.
3: Not anymore, mate. No, falling off's not fun. Jono, we're we're welcome back. How are you, Keith? Uh,
1: yeah, I'm in cracking form, actually, really, really good form, entertained by this kind of concept of giving over my phone, which is, uh, which is making me a tad nervous. So um, you can ease my nerves here if at all possible.
0: Or actually preferably increase the nerves, Jono. I'd much rather you did that because um, <laughs> you would have seen all sides of Keith Wood over the course of that Lions Tour in 97. We're, we were just discussing the, the dressing room and the living with the Lions video before the second test and the atmosphere in the dressing room that day. My word. It's just an incredible thing to, to, to look in on. What, what are your memories of that day?
3: Obviously, you know, winning the first test, we'd sort of pulled their tail, hadn't we? And they, they we knew they were going to come out you know, completely revved up. But we'd been through so many big games already. It was just, you know, every game felt like a massive game on that tour, really. First test was huge. A- after playing, you know, pretty well during the tour, going into that first test match was still a huge setup. So it was a very, very nervous team, you know, very anxious because it was a, a relatively inexperienced team, full stop, never mind inexperienced Lions-wise. It was very young, particularly the forwards. So, yeah, we, we were... Under no illusions, I think, as to what we were facing. You knew you were in a big moment, you know, a big historical moment in your career, but you also just got to concentrate on the here and now. And if, if we're not on it, we're going to get steamrolled by that Springbok pack. I actually watched a couple of clips. I did a chat with someone on this I don't know, a few weeks ago. You see them come out for the second test. That that is a determined Springbok team. You know, they they've had that week of being abused for losing the first game and they came out to blow us away, really.
1: John, what did you think of the blend that we had? Because like I spoke in, in that change room, Lawrence spoke a fair bit, Jason did even from time to time from the bench. You spoke very little. Was that Couldn't because a word, we spoke mate? too you much? Like
3: <laughs> Listen, the guys who did the video at the end of the tour, I, I just said to the boys, you know, just casually, look, I'll go down and just check what's coming out. And uh, I went down to see them do the edit of, of the video. I, I just couldn't believe the footage they had because we were so used to them being there. I don't know if you felt the same way. I, I saw the I saw the, the footage of the of the first test, the changing room footage. And by the way, they, they said to me, you know, we don't mind a bit of bad language, but we've had to edit Keith on this. I hope that's okay. And I said, well, what, what's the problem? He said, he's got 15 f-words in 45 seconds <laughs> i remember actually after the test jerry because that was a, it was a, it was like a horseshoe uh, shaped changing room at cape town so the backs were sort of one side naturally and we were the other and you were doing that chat i remember after the game jerry just giggling to himself about the backs were just listening to you to you go off <laughs> I was a little
1: giggle. Okay, I have to tell you, John. Think- there's a, there's one there's one part of, one part in that you heard the edited version because the the guys rang me and said, Woody, it's it's about thirty five seconds, maybe forty seconds, and you curse thirty five times
4: <laughs> in it.
1: I said, Well, if you can cut that in half, it'll be fine. So you actually heard the edited part of that. Jerry caught my eye in the middle of it, and of course, I was in full frenzy and. I said I'm not going to lose my temper with him because he just couldn't deal with any of that. But we we maybe needed that little bit of extra madness involved in it, you know. But look, no, I no, remember no, the sound no. the sound of Jenkins like it was Neil Jenkins who was who was puking. Constantly. I think I did before yeah. the second test. Yeah. With three or four guys got sick in the change room, so nervous.
3: You look Jenks during the game, as we line up, Bentos has got his arm around him and Bentos ruffles his hair like he's his twelve year old boy. Like he just ruffles his hair like it's got and Jenks can barely stand up, he's like <laughs> It's, it's unbelievable. Jenks is almost crippled. With, you know, he's he's bent over, and then he, he'd go and kick the goals. You know, like he like it was nothing. The thing I was saying, you know, it was a very very young pack of forwards. Normally on a Lions tour, the forwards are you know any rugby team, the forwards are a bit older, a bit more experienced generally. The backs generally a little bit younger. But you think about our, our starting test pack, Tom Smith and Richard Hill made their test debuts that year in the Five Nations in 97. You know, Wally hadn't played a huge amount of tests. Lawrence hadn't played a huge amount, huge amount of tests. He'd only been the England team for really about 18 months, two years, tops. I mean, even me and Keith had probably been, only been around three or four years. It wasn't like there was huge veteran forwards. You know, it's only me and Jason Leonard had been on the 93 tour, I think, in the forward pack. Whilst in the backs, you had, you know, Jerry and, and Yian had been on two previous Lions tours. Gibbsy had played in 93. And then you had the league guys who'd come back. Bateman and Bentley and Tate were, were older guys and very experienced. So it was, it, was a, it was a strange match in that way. But we knew we were going into something pretty pretty tasty in that second test. And they didn't let us down. You know, he, he, Jenks kicked off. They drove us back. They just came directly at us and smashed us back. And, um, you know, we had to hang on a little bit there in that first 10, 15 minutes. They, they were so... You know, when you play a South African team that's up against it, and that was a good South African team. They had a big run of unbeaten test matches after that second test, and uh, they were desperate to win that series, which made it such a great game. I think a lot of the
1: guys as well, you said they were young, but a lot of the guys hadn't won. Hadn't won big games. I hadn't. And I couldn't get over the last 10 minutes of the second test in particular. I couldn't get over how hard it was because it was an entirely new emotion. It was the idea that... This is all your dreams coming at once. And it wasn't fear. It was almost pain. It was that hard. It was that difficult to kind of get there. I remember people saying afterwards, you must have been so happy at the end of the second test. I nearly cried. I was so tired. It was so sore. It was so hard. It was a a surreal moment where you think, God, you're going to be high as a kite and feel truly fantastic. I was just happy it was over. And I was happy we won. But I was happy it was over. It was that hard.
3: As I said, I watched a bit of it on YouTube the other day because you, you forget your sense of the game all these years different versus what the game actually was when you look at it. It's often different straight away, never mind after all these years. So it was a strange game in that they scored their I said, and oh, they scored three tries. Well, well, we passed them the ball for one. Alan Tate passed them the ball, you know, for one of their tries. So and, and Joubert beat Bentley on the outside and scored. But they had, they had us under pressure at times. But after we got over their initial sort of surge, I never felt like they were killing us. Their back line wasn't great. It wasn't a hugely experienced back line. It a very, very determined pack. But I always felt we were in the game, and we were. We were always in the game on the scoreboard, and with Jenks, you know, he would get you points when you had the opportunity. And, and they were giving penalties away. I felt they were all disciplined. And, uh, do you remember the ref was Didier Mene? He's only a little guy. Wore these specs look like a little French school teacher really nice guy good referee and I felt that they wouldn't listen to him and I, I, I felt he felt disrespected by them and wanted to show them he was referee and he penalised them a lot I just felt their indiscipline potentially was, was going to cost them and, and every time we got up there we seemed to get penalties and Jenks would kick him and keep us in the game.
1: I love that bit of, of Jim Telfer I loved in part of his chat beforehand and I don't know if it comes across in the video or not and it's not his Everest one it's but it was the idea that the South Africans were bigger than we were. And if we could use <laughs> their size against them, that they would be totally pissed off. And that's actually what happened. The fact that smaller guys would run into them at a million miles an hour and then another four guys would smash them. Why wouldn't we do it? And uh, Wally, at the height, he had the scrummat, which used Osdorant's weight against him. That that idea, we just constantly picked at them. It was like... Um, uh, like we were just annoying them constantly, constantly, and I think they reacted really badly.
3: The only, the only, regret, I haven't got any regrets on that tour, but it would have been lovely to have produced some of the great attacking rugby that we did in the tour during those first two games. I actually watched the clip of the third test, you know, and we played some great rugby. I know we <laughs> we ended up on the wrong side of a defeat, but we actually played some amazing rugby in that in that game. Just didn't quite turn them into into scores, and they probably just had the well, they definitely had the sort of will to win more than we did in the last twenty minutes of that game, but. It was the sort of rear guard effort in a way of just hanging in there with them and then landing the, the killer punch at the end. But of all the rugby I've played, that tour, I think, was some of the most joyful rugby. You know, when you came off thinking, wow, what a game that was. That was. And even watching the boys when they played up at the Free State that midweek when we stayed down in Durban, just watching that game, you would, you know, it's compelling to watch it. And I'll never forget, Gibbs, he said at the end of the game, I wish I was playing. You know, no one says that in a midweek game between Test matches, do they? No one says, yeah. I wish I was playing midweek up <laughs> Blumford saying on a Tuesday night
1: <laughs> that was one of the best games was, I've it, ever seen, as, as a like sitting yeah. as a fan watching your teammates and you're down yeah. at at sea level. But that's one of the best games of rugby of all time.
3: The rugby the guys played was, was just amazing and it, it was inspiring to us, wasn't it? It was inspiring to see them play like that against a, a really you know, mid Blum, you know, Orange Free State between test matches. That's an ambush game, isn't it? That's a game where they're trying to knock you about and knock your confidence and the boys just went up there and smashed it I mean they they flew up that morning Geach didn't go did he Geach um, was ill I think and didn't go if you remember so Jim was in charge of the ship and um, they just went up there and handled it
0: John, there's a great moment at the end of that second test when Keith... Yeah, when the whistle goes, mate. <laughs> when the whistle comes. <laughs> just before that, and you're just trying to get territory, you're trying to get out of trouble. It was a tight old game, but Woody fly hacks the ball up, up the pitch and uh, he puts in a huge big chase and it was just the stress relief. Oh my word, it was unbelievable. It was like li- lifting the lid on a boiling that- kettle.
3: Is that after the job goal? Before, before, before,
0: before,
3: yeah, Yeah, so, I mean, when we when we get the job goal, people oh, Jerry got the goal. There's a ruck, and I give it up for dead. And Neil Back's on the field at this point, and Backy steals the ball, and Woody gets involved and grabs it and shoots it up the touchline and chases it, and that results in the field position that we score the points off. So the thing with having good rugby players on the field is they can just see things and do things. I always said that, you know, if you're in a team that's got 15 guys who can make rugby decisions, you know, that's not necessarily just throwing flash passes around. That's what people think about when you say a good rugby player. The guys who can make a decision defensively or just in the moment and and, and just rugby like that, you know, with a ball, I'd come out the rock and thought, oh, it's gone, that's lost. We'll defend the next phase. Backy steals it somehow. Woody gets it up the field and... um and suddenly we, we get three points out of
1: it I kicked the ball I ran up the field I'm slightly embarrassed by the very end Joubert just kicks it into touch and I fell over No, no there was nothing there for me to fall over I was just shattered I actually fell over and then I had to throw yeah. the ball into the line out but my favourite part of that all of it not, and Gus got's kick is incredible and, and but it was on easy the rook. Kicks easy? I could do that. On my left. Foot. Yeah, yeah. I've seen you kick the ball. You're utterly useless. Mate, I can but
3: drop a goal, mate. I can drop a yeah. goal.
1: <laughs> Twenty years yeah. after retiring, maybe that's the only time you can drop a goal. I've, but I've Tim just, I've Tim a goal
3: the halfway line in training numerous times.
1: Yeah, you have to do it in the big games.
3: No, no. Anyway, I in the big game,
1: Tim Rodberg got hit in the face. He got punched in the eye and split under the eye. And that's that my was, favorite part. That was part.
3: Fritzy, wasn't that, it? Was that Fritzy yeah, Van Heer? Yeah,
1: Fritz Van here, And what, what I, what, it's my favorite part of it, not that Tim got split, but the fact that he cocked his fist to hit him back and then didn't and cleared out the ruck and he won the ruck for the pass for the drop goal. Okay. And it was that discipline for me because it was a nasty dig and he, he, he thought of clocking him back, but he kept his composure and won the ruck. And I love that. I love that idea of having that discipline with two or three minutes to go.
0: Do you know what I love about this is yeah. that we, we, after all the after all these years, Woody and John, we can we can finally tell Jerry that it wasn't his drop goal that won that second test and the test series, but it was uh, it was Woody's hack up the field. Good, excellent. Well, if they, you could yeah. ring him immediately that's, that's
3: and tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is an honest story. When when Dawson when Matt scored the try in the in the, the first test, I, mean, I didn't really see it. Really see what happened because you're coming out of scrum and it was probably halfway there before I got my head up but the first thing I did when when he scored was grab Wally and just say that was your try mate you know he got that inch or two inches or whatever he got let's call it let's call it a foot or a yard or something on the right hand side of the scrum forward against Durant you know we've we've, I think we got on top of them at the end of the first test we'd played a lot more tough rugby they hadn't played a test match in a while and come out of super rugby and they'd beaten Tonga the week before and I think the last 15 of the first test we were definitely the stronger team but I said to Wally, you know, that that's your that's yours, mate. You've got the never mind the guy who's won forty yards and done with the whole team. Forget him. Yeah, you know, that was that was the right hand side of the scrum, made that try. So that's the essence of the game, isn't it? It's a team game. Yeah. And, yeah. and as long as guys appreciate, you know, the graph that other people put in. He's playing tight head prop <laughs> in the front row. <laughs> you
0: know. <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> Why would
3: anyone do that? No. <laughs> I was at something a couple of years ago with Georgie Gregan and we were on stage and someone said, oh, how come George looks like he's 28 and you look like, yeah, whatever, 58. <laughs> I just went into a rant. I said, mate, when we're doing 50 scrum sessions, you know, in training every week, George is practicing putting the ball in and, and uh, doing his little box kicks. I mean, you know, it's just a different existence, isn't it? Being, <laughs> being, I mean, scrummaging against Oz Durant for eighty minutes. I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs>
0: you know. But look, Jono, it's so good. We could do a whole program just on, on, on that game, never mind the whole tour. It's been really good talking to you and uh, you uh, reliving those moments with Woody and I. Thanks so much. It's been great chatting to you. Take care of yourself. So, okay, now
3: get back so i have bite. to leave you, leave you with a podcast of Keith's Kicks, is it? Yeah, yeah.
1: Famous <laughs> famous. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. There's only one. <laughs> good
0: boo That's All a right, program idea. Jono, take care of yourself. Great talking Cheers, Jono. So, yeah, bye, you know something Woody, if anyone out there and they're not they don't know so much about rugby, but if anyone listens to that, and that's the great march, and Johnson still excited about a game that happened a long, long time ago. That's the importance of the Lions. That's the effect it has on on a human being, right?
1: Well, look, it is. And also that's Martin Johnson. And Martin Johnson that most people see is Martin Johnson as captain with a big scowl on his face, a dreadful scowl on his face, or as England coach, where he was batting back every journalist at every, you know, uh, one word answers only from Jono. Uh, Jono will talk you to death. He is fantastic, and he's a total rugby nerd. Actually, he's a nerd on most things, but he's a total rugby nerd. And he's excited. And and one of the I, I, I remember the line from Ian McEwan, and he just said, "You'll you'll see each other in twenty years' time, and you'll just catch a glance." You know, if you succeed today, it was before the second test. Uh, that if you succeed today, you'll just know that you've shared something. I think of that line always. Because it's so true. I can't wait to catch up with the Lions guys that, you know, that I toured with. But also not just the guys you toured with, with guys who've toured previously. I've become friends with some of the guys who toured in the 50s and 60s and 70s. It's just interesting to go and meet them because you have a little bit of a shared existence. And there's something fantastic about that.
0: I could hear I could hear between the two of you. It was lovely, lovely uh, chemistry. Very, very special. So look, we're, we've started at the kind of the pinnacle of things. Let's go back to the start. The best way to do this is really to call in one of your old pals. And you have a lot of them. You have a lot of friends from from your youth in your phone. But it seems to me, and I got a little bit of advice on this that a chap by the name of Barry Gleeson is the guy we should talk about Keith Wood as a kid
1: yeah my my first memory was knocking over Barry Um, I was we had a Bowway gate next to our house in the main street in Killaloo Barry grew up two doors up from me and the big thing for me at four years of age was that I could hurdle the low part of that gate there was a little half gate in it and I that was the big thing for me to try and do and I did it one day And landed on Barry. So that's my memory goes
0: back 45 years. Let's see if Barry survived that squashing and let's get him on the phone. Let's give Barry Gleason a call. So you've known him as what? First day day at school together and the whole lot?
1: Yeah, in primary school, we sat in the same seat 45 <laughs> years ago which is quite disturbing
0: because you're probably still sitting on top of the poor fella uh, Barry hello I was small good afternoon hello there Barry it's Craig Doyle here you're on the contact book with your, your old pal Keith Woods, who's just telling us how we squished you it was the first time he met you
5: he certainly did, Craig. How are you doing, Keith? Happy birthday, by the way. Um, uh, thank you, yeah, Barry. I know we grew up four doors down from each other in uh, Killaloo. And my first day in school, I had the, the joy of being between Keith Wood and actually Mike Coughlin, who also played rugby at Gary So two very big fellas who stunted my growth very early on in life until I escaped that desk.
1: Yeah, that's not entirely true, by the way. I was tiny, Craig, and uh, people oh. kind of forget <laughs> that fact. I know however tiny I was, Barry, you were smaller, I have to say.
5: I was a bit smaller, yeah. So and we were also two gardens apart. So uh, I would say, yeah, we were um, we were fairly intertwined growing up in Killaloo with our siblings as well.
0: He's still a bag of energy when he can be. What was he like back then, Barry?
5: Most people know him for rugby, but growing up in Killaloo, he was known for hurling and lots of other sports and being a, a star performer. So my experience of Keith was a lot of stuff I see with him now. I, I, I saw growing up in Killaloo and a lot of people from the hometown would see it from, from his time playing hurling and rugby was a, a late blossom. And uh, if I describe in hurling Keith had kind of two very good strategies. One was to sidestep you and the other one was to go through you. And I think he carried those into rugby but um, but he learned them in hurling. So I always see him with a hurling in his hand when he's sidestepping people on a rugby pitch.
0: I'm going to have to give Woody one of your, one of your greatest challenges in life because the contact book I'm delighted to say is listened to right around the world and there are people listening who don't know what you're talking about with hurling. So how would you explain Um, hurling to a newbie? i leave that to both of you to describe.
1: Look, for me, it's like ice (laughs) hockey on grass with a three foot stick that promotes bravery with very few (laughs) rules, but the highest skill level of anything. But it's the fastest uh, grass field sport in the world. Still my favourite game to watch, I have to say. It's it's pure skill.
5: We ended up playing together on on a Clare hurling team. And I would have said if, if Keith had said with Herland, he would have probably been on a winning All-Ireland hurling team. So he was actually an exceptionally good hurler, except when he decided to go through people, in which case the referee probably didn't particularly like him too much. But uh, he was a great hurler. And ironically, on the street of Killaloo, I also grew up down the road from Anthony Foley, who also played on the same hurling team in a Munster final in 1988. So um, so definitely look up hurling if you don't know on the line what Hurling is and see see where Keith uh, learned some of his um, exquisite and dangerous moves I would say
0: uh, and the All-Ireland I mean the Hurling Championship like the Gaelic Football Championship is is so big on our island basically every county uh, all 32 counties on the island are represented but certainly then in Clare it, it would be massive Hurling there's often a little battle between Hurling and Gaelic football but Clare a Hurling County Keith so to represent Clare in Hurling would have been absolutely huge for you probably a bigger dream than playing rugby for Munster I would have thought at the time
1: well, it was it was strange. It was it was a big thing when when I was in school, I just started going back playing rugby again and I didn't go for Ireland schools or Munster schools trials. Now, I don't know whether I would have got them even at that stage, but I chose to play hurling instead. And it was an amazing time because I just started to grow and just started to get bigger and... The things that were the agility that Barry would talk about, and the sidestep and the acceleration and all that sort of stuff works really well. But if you're very big, it doesn't work that well. So I suddenly went from being able to to turn in the sixpence to be turning on like an Arctic tanker. So the the, the game sort of changed for me very much. And at that stage, I lost all patience with it. I certainly became more likely to go through you than go around
0: you. Anyone who spent any time with Keith will tell you he'll talk about his dad, Gordon, the late Gordon, an awful lot, almost like he's still, still with us, Keith and Barry. And of course, he died when you were very, very young, Keith. And Barry, you were alongside Keith during those times and your dad was alongside to help out as well. But I mean, what a difficult thing for a young man of 10 years old to deal with.
5: Absolutely. And look, there's a couple of things. I remember Gordon, we had a shop and Gordon used to come in and if there's anyone ever shake hands with Keith or he comes up behind you and he puts his hand on your shoulder, that power came from his dad. He didn't lick that off a stone. He's, his dad had the strongest hand I've ever met. I remember he put his hand in my head and he's kind of shaking my hair and I, my head sank into my shoulders a little bit. So, so Gordon was a huge, powerful man. You know, my parents knew his parents pretty well and my dad actually had a very soft spot for Keith because he lost his dad at a young age. My own dad lost his brother at 34. So I, I'm going to say he kind of semi-adopted Keith. Now, not that Keith wanted, it you know he, he had an advisor in his mother but uh, whether he wanted it or not he had an advisor in my dad for many many years and dad used to call him the other son but uh, very close there's two Barry's I think you could say would be on this call if my dad was still around he'd be on this call now and uh he'd be still telling Keith to mind himself and to mind what other fathers are telling
1: him. So. In fairness Barry Barry senior and it's we can get very emotional on this very quickly but Barry was like my surrogate father and Oh, he was a great blunt man, very blunt, very honest, uh, incredibly loyal. I mean, I don't think I've ever met a man as loyal as your dad. Um, and he'd have a cottage or two, but it was out of love. Mm. And um, but we used to have so much crack. Even when I went over to Quinn's, uh, like I remember uh, Barry Young, Barry, as in who's on this call. Barry said, "Listen, we're going to come over to the game at the weekend when you're playing." And I said, "Great, can we stay with you?" I said, "Fantastic, no problem." So I presume there was two people and 15 turned up and all all came in, all stayed in in the house, all <laughs> lay down the floor. I mean, his dad included, some of his dad's friends. Absolutely brilliant. We caused total carnage in London, which was no harm either. You
5: know? and, I, and I will say, Keith, and, and you, you'll probably remember this, but my dad had a few conditions. So not only to watch you playing and make sure everyone didn't take too much out of you, but he wanted to go to mass on Sunday. So I said, Keith, look, we're going to have to solve this one. My dad always goes to church on Sunday. And, and Keith, surprisingly, me you know, and I wouldn't say he's a big mass goer, these days but he, uh, he said no I'll start that out I'll start it out so on, on Sunday morning all 15 of us headed off on taxis to the church in King's Cross which <laughs>
6: turned out not at all
5: not at all to be a church <laughs> And when, when Keith said we brought some other people, we brought Mick Jurek, a school teacher, and a few people who hadn't been in that sort of world. And I'll never forget their faces looking up at the altar and thinking, how do we end up here? So that was that. Uh, so, no, he was very obliging, but he wouldn't necessarily do the thing you asked him to do, but something like it. I've been lucky enough to
0: go to that particular church. <laughs> Can you yeah. describe to everyone listening what site... You might have beh- beheld as you walked through the doors of it.
5: OK, so, so look, it's, it's a big warehouse at the back of an old canal area, at the back of King's Cross in central London. And as you approach it, there's hundreds of people coming out that look like they've been up for the last 24 hours, <laughs> soaked in sweat and carrying cans of beer and looking fairly worse for wear. So the church is actually a morning after nightclub for people who can't stop going, right? So we turn up at 10 o'clock and everyone has absolutely been drinking for 10 hours. And I have people thinking they're
6: going to Mass. Uh,
0: Barry, it's so good talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. And it's lovely to get that little insight into a young and slightly older Keith Wood as well. So appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
5: Not at all. Take care. Take care, Keith. Thanks,
0: lads. Cheers, Barry. Bye-bye. This is what I love about your story, Keith. I I was looking at your phone. There were so many well-known names I could call. But your, your favorites are, are people who just influenced your life, but, you know, they weren't in the spotlight themselves, just good, solid people like Barry. And another one is Pat Cross, who is your teacher and your coach. And every single person I've interviewed, bar, bar none, they've all said there's a teacher in their lives who influenced them beyond belief. Uh, and Pat Cross was your guy, was he?
1: Yeah, he, he He actually didn't teach me. He was a very, he was the youngest teacher in Munchens when I went there in the early 80s. And he was all the, the majority of the teachers were, were approaching retirement. And he was the youngest. He was kind of like a sixth year. So everybody gravitated to him because he was a load of crack, uh, a lot of fun,
0: just he was a bit bold, you know. And Munchens um, would be quite a posh secondary school now, then. Uh, no, not
1: way. no, no. We definitely wouldn't. We we'd never qualify as posh. Munchens is a diocesan college. It's it was a mixture of um, boarders and day boys, so it would deal with the local community and also dealt with a lot of kind of farmer stock from West Limerick. But it's a it's a it's a really good proud school rugby school, quite strong. My three boys go there, um, and they're there now. So should we give him a call? Should we give Should we give Pat absolutely. a call? Absolutely. Let's give it, Pat a call. Bring
0: it. When's the last time you spoke to Pat? Uh,
1: I have to speak to Pat every now and then because he uh, he
0: looks after my boys. He's still oh, coaches in there. Still coaches yeah. in there. Oh wow. Yeah. Teachers are always the worst at answering it. Hello, hiya, Pat. How are you? It's Craig Doyle here. Uh, Craig, you're on the Craig. contact book. How are you doing? How are you doing? Well, I'm great, thank you. Guess who I have with me at the moment,
6: Mr. Keith Wood. Uh, Singing your Mr. praises. Keith Wood, never heard of. It. I'm
0: saying nice. I'm saying <laughs>
6: nice things about your passion in fairness. Yeah, a bit late now. Now that I'm retired. <laughs> a lot late, yeah. Pat, tell us, tell us yeah, about how Keith. How you don't... I have a few memories of Keith, especially a couple from school. But the big one for me would have been the time that we got together, a rushed overnight job to put a team together to play. Was it the New Zealand under-21s? Do you remember that, Keith?
1: I do, I do, yeah.
6: So we got a call saying there had been some trouble with, uh, I don't know, there had been a cancellation and were asked to take on the fixture. So we kind of put together a team and uh, it was all a bit of a rush rush job like and next thing, Keith took over the whole thing. There was no coaching involved from our side of it. But from his end of it, like he just got the players together. Uh, we had a very short run out, but he actually gelled the whole thing together. Every player probably played his best game of his life, and they all played superbly. And they beat them? Beat them. Oh, won. yeah. And Woody had a, a huge role in that, in that he gelled the whole thing together. I, at the time, he was probably just 21. And I was amazed that he had changed so much in a few, three or four years that I hadn't seen him, that he had actually become a man and a leader of men, more importantly. Pat it's great oh, talking you. to you yeah, yeah. we're
0: going to let you go there's a queue of people who want to get stuck okay, into no body. but thank you so much yeah. for your time it's great talking
6: to you okay. all the best best of luck Craig good take luck care. Woody see you take care che- cheers Bye. Pat <laughs>
1: thank you
0: So, Woody, we're going to delve into Munster in Ireland now. And I thought about who do we ring in your contact book? Because obviously it's clogged full of great names. And I thought, well, maybe Mick Galway, Golov. And then maybe Peter Clossy. And I thought, well, I'm just seeing legal problems and us being taken off air. You know, what do you think? Bad call.
1: I think a very good decision and plus mm. the very simple fact that you can't put subtitles on a podcast and any yes. of our international listeners wouldn't have a rash um what the guys were saying. Uh, bearing in mind, they also talk in stories and they know the end of the story and they <laughs> laugh before the end of the story. So unless you know the story, it's just it's just kind of mad, actually.
0: OK, I think a good middle ground here would be the... Munster and Ireland and Lyons legendary back row that is David Wallace so you must have Davis Wallace in your phone call I, I know he's a busy man he actually works properly we're ringing Wally okay good stuff he's quite grown up these days isn't he old Wally not like him hello hi Wally how you doing it's Craig Doyle here on the contact book I've uh, Keith Wood with me on the line how you doing
5: Hiya Craig, hiya Keith, I'm very good
0: w- Wally, we, we were going through Keith's contacts when it came to Munster in Ireland and we thought you're the only safe one that you could actually allow on to
2: broadcast and talk about Keith's life I thought he just started at the bottom and he got to Wallace <laughs> and he said, oh look, he <laughs> He just got lazy. Def-
1: definitely a bit of that too, Wally
2: uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you Say Paul Wally, he won't say anything too bad.
0: <laughs> Wally, you well, well, well. well, had a significant uh, yeah. few years together with Munster in Ireland, didn't you? I mean, it was a huge part of both your lives.
2: I, I suppose I knew really through, through uh, Richard really first, and, and, and Gary On. You know, so obviously we both would have been members of Gary On, and Woody was, was starring. Um, my brother Richard playing with them. So that's when I first got to know Woody. But yeah, look, I obviously was was a big fan and watched all those. Gary games and, and uh, obviously Woody was playing with Ireland as well at that stage so he was right up there in my estimation but yeah so great to actually get in and play with him a few years later
0: we, we, We've had a lot of players on this show who who changed the way their position was played and I think Woody was definitely one of those because he used to do things like kick the ball and pass and even catch it I mean we'd never seen hookers play like this before
2: Yeah look I think Woody in terms of how how he his influence on the game and and how he changed how you know hookers and and even forward should play the the way he used his carry the ball and his um, it just his his general approach to the game was was fantastic and uh, a joy to behold. Especially when you're a young fellow watching Gary Owen, you can get up close. And, and I still remember he hit a rock close to the, the, the sideline out in Gary Owen. Um, a match I was watching as a, as a school kid and I just shuddered I shuddered I was like I can never play this game it's just the force he hit it with but um, luckily I, I never got any that was from him too much but yeah look I I think when Woody Woody joined us in, uh, obviously Woody would play the Munster but he, he came back to us from Harlequins in, in that 99-2000 season and uh we made a massive jump going from perennial underachievers you know never getting to the kind of latter stages of European competitions or anything to all of a sudden being in, in a European Cup final and, and I'm not sure Woody if, if it was you but I, I remember a goal setting session in that 19, 1999 pre-season and uh, we were doing our usual kind of thing with Declan Kidney and, and Dave Mahevy at Newell of you know what do we want to achieve this season you know we want to, we want to win the Interpros or their first match in France and it was things like that, you know, um, one of the sections was was dream goals. And that was probably all the stuff that was going in there. And I think it was Woody and Woody, you might put, set me right on this and who popped up and said, look, we need to win the European Cup. That's that's what we want to do. And, and uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I think half of the room laughed at that stage um, because we just didn't have the belief in us. And that's what Woody brought to us, and and it was that standard in training as well, where he'd he would bitch at everyone, and he'd he'd you know call people out if if he said you know this, that's not a good enough standard, that you drop ball, you know, do some press ups, you know, just not accepting inferior standards and, and, and that drove us on you know it was I mean there was it was other factors in that season as well but for me that was that was a big one and uh, in games like Saracens and Tolman Park where we're, were on our line with, with only a few minutes ago and we're behind and I think you know with Woody there next to you kind of thought well look we, we can beat anyone we marched down the field and, and scored a for and Rodge kicked the conversion hit the post and went over to win it and 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 that was i think a, a belief and standards that, that woody brought.
1: I do remember that goal setting session it was a it was a unusual one for me because my head had gone from i think from from the lines but also been over in Quinns to to thinking that you're supposed to be in a competition to win it and actually people did laugh when i said that which made it kind of unusual of which i got cranky which i did for a lot of that year, and I I remember coming back to Monster and thinking, having come from Queens, that we'd nine international captains in the team in Queens, and looking at the Monster ragtaggle bunch, and saying, "Oh my God, you know." Um, and after the first two or three sessions, suddenly realizing, a) there was an awful lot more crack in Monster, there was fun in everything you did, and b) that they were unbelievable natural footballers. And um, they would know naturally what to do without having to think about it or be coached about it. And there was a sort of, I would say, an agricultural nature to how they played. But the link between forwards and backs from that monster team in 1999-2000 was incredible. And look, I would always say when you look at the Wallaces and the three Wallaces, so you had Richie, who I played with first, who was an incredibly fast winger. You then had David, or you had Paul, who was the tight head prop with me in the lines in 97. And then you had David. I mean, the genetics in that family.
2: But <laughs> <laughs> well, Woody, I, I do have a bone to pick with you. And that was when I did finally get into the into the Irish setup. You were kind of in charge of who did what job, and etc., when I came in anyway was, the job was to, to clean the changing rooms and the bus after every session we had which was by far the worst job that you could get and I had I must have had that for four or five years and Woody you took great pleasure in giving it to me So so you got a bus <laughs>
0: a and a change and it's covered in blood and snot and bandages and spit oh, yeah. and sweat yeah. and filth got it. 100%. 100% yeah
2: Lovely. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll have to get you back for that Woody but uh, good times good times
1: <laughs> You were given the job Wally because you were very good at it and you did it really well we didn't want to give it to somebody who wouldn't do it as well as you did you see that's that's proper leadership
2: that was that was my fault it was a perfectionist yeah yeah I, sh- I should have known yeah, I should have done a dodgy job day one and
0: and, and, and Wally your, your fondest memory of Keith in, in an Ireland jersey I remember being over at that World Cup in 2003 and I'm getting injections into his shoulder and thinking, is he ever going to last the pace here? But such a key man when it came to the Green of Ireland.
2: Yeah, and again, like, I, I suppose I kind of modelled myself a little bit and tried to be the ball carrier, and Woody would have been one of those guys. I would have, I suppose, tried to, to take everything from what he did and, and see how he did it, and, and uh, he was he was massive for me. So any time he got his hands on the ball, the whole crowd just, you know, you could feel the energy rising and, and they knew he was going to do something special but having that kicking ability and everything as well too on, on the back of it so yeah uh, just special times when he was playing and, and, and he stood out a mile as was world class and, and I think in an Irish Perspective, you know, at times where we wouldn't wouldn't have been winning a lot of games, you know, he was really something to to be proud of and having that world class standard.
0: Uh, Wally, it's great talking to you. I know you've got an actual proper job.
2: I got to go back so, to it. I'm late I'm for calls. So
0: I got get on it. Come on, jump on that Zoom. Thanks right. a million. Cheers.
2: All the best. Thanks, Wally, good, take good care. Cheers, so, Wally. Right, bye
0: bye. Now it's been referenced a couple of times, Woody, and it was the big trip over to London and over to Harlequins. And for those of you who don't know domestic rugby in England. Harlequins would be like, it would be a lot of the old city brokers and stuff. It's quite flash. Will Carling was the captain at one stage and they were all good-looking guys and socialites and it was in southwest London. And, uh, you know, for a Munster fella to go over there, Woody, I thought it was an unusual choice of club because it was just so inversely proportional to what you were used to.
1: It was very unusual. It came about because I got injured in the World Cup in 95. And... I went over to England to have the surgery. It was a, a very complicated surgery on a posterior dislocation of my shoulder. So it was a, it was a really tricky one. And and I came back and there was Irish contracts were being given out and I wasn't given one. And I remember asking why I wasn't given one. And they said, well, you don't feature in the, in our plans. And I said, well, I've only just played in the World Cup. And they said, well, look, you're injured. So I said, listen, I've got a couple of offers, three offers in the UK. And they said, well, we don't think you should go. And I said, well, I'm going to go because this is a chance to play professional rugby. And I was very fortunate in that I was working with Irish Permanent at the time. And the the CEO, Roy Douglas, I went and I met him and he said, well, I'll make it very easy for you. I'll give you an open-ended leave of absence. And if your shoulder goes or it doesn't work out for you, you always have a job here, which is the coolest wow, thing that that's any, any guy could give you, a CEO could give you. So... I decided to go to London because I'm from the country. I'm from Killaloo, but it's I'm not really a city boy. And I actually wanted to be out of my comfort zone. And I remember I signed a three year contract because I knew I'd hate it. And I said it would force me to like it. Now, there's a bit of perverse logic if you want it. And I fell in love with the place after six weeks. I thought that I thought the place was just incredible. And I was a kid. I was 23, 24. First time really outside of Limerick. I I hadn't Clare or Limerick. I hadn't really. I I worked a bit in Dublin, but I I commuted almost. I, I I just went up there for for a few days at a time. But I, I had never really lived outside of here. So it was a shock. I mean, it was a huge shock, and it was the start of the professional game, and uh, it was bewildering. You know, we had the most incredible rugby players, and. And I loved it, actually. Um, And I stayed in London afterwards. So, um, look, I fell in love with London.
0: And it was the start of one of the many bromances in your life. Quite a few bromances. But this one I like because it's a real odd couple. You've got this, you know, fella coming up from the country. And then he pairs up with a young, handsome, like a male model playing rugby, who was also injured at the same time as you. No surprise, he's on telly with me these days. And that's Ugo Monje. So let let's give Ugo a buzz. Ugo went on obviously to play for England and the and the Lions as well. But you became quite good friends. So let's give Ugo a buzz. He's probably great. He's probably he's out. He'd be at like a launch of something or selling something. He's he'd be putting out, on
1: uh, putting hello? on hair products.
0: He's putting on are the, the tightest t-shirt. Oh, is he with us now. <laughs> Ugo, how are you? It's great here.
7: <laughs> the most handsome, or oh, the second most handsome man. In Premiership Rugby history, right?
0: Hey, are you? I didn't crown myself, or I, not, not crown myself. I was, I
7: was, <laughs> at, I was, I was talking about Craig. So Craig was oh, involved I in a poll last <laughs> a poll last week where um, they had the most handsome man in rugby, okay. and uh, the dark horse Doyle managed to get himself to the final, and he just lost out. Uh, a devastatingly good-looking man in Henry Slade, and I think anyone would be happy to lose to him. So, it's official. Craig Dawes is the second most handsome man <laughs> in the Premiership. There you go.
0: It's not like I've thought about this, and I've slept a little bit since, but, you know, the fact is, Henry Slade put it on his Twitter, uh, and he has 200,000 followers. So, what hope did I have? Not that I've analysed the results or anything, oh but I'm just saying... You
1: can pathetic sometimes.
0: Like the idea, when
1: people talk and slag about the media, you're the reason they slag them off, Craig. I'm telling you.
0: Let's move this away from me, if you don't mind. Um, I want to <laughs> talk about I want to talk about your your bromance back in the Harlequins days, Hugo. Yeah. So tell us the situation and how you, you got to know each other, because it was a, a slightly unusual situation. You weren't out playing rugby together, but you were hanging out together.
7: It was kind of bizarre. So to kind of get back to the start of it, to then take you to how I got to know Woody was... I mean, i just done my A-levels and then got propelled into this professional environment at Harlequins. And, you know, I spent that summer watching the British and Irish Lions tour, which Woody was a part of. In fact, he was named the world's best player. So you're like, oh my word, you're stepping out of county-level players and under-18 age-grade players into... A changing room full of international superstars, and Woody was one of those. Um, and as every young lad wants to do, you want to impress, and you want to, you know, make your way and get in the team. But that wasn't to be for me. I I injured myself. I, I fractured a metatarsal. And so I spent a bit of time on the sidelines. And that coincided with Woody, I think, coming back from his 10th shoulder operation. And so the most unlikely of bonds became the strongest of bonds because I spent every single day, morning, evening with Woody, just rehabbing and to kind of immerse myself into understand what it would take to be a high-level performing athlete and there wasn't anyone better to learn from at that time.
1: My God, I, I don't know, that last line surprises me a lot but I I, I loved it because it's funny. Like, So I was at the end of my career, I was 31 or thereabouts, 30, 30 31. Ugo was 17 or 18. He was the quickest thing of all time with a broken bone in his foot Um, he was quicker than I was and we trained and had a bit of fun and trained and slagged each other and trained and uh, (laughs) learned from each other and trained and it was amazing because it was only it was really only the two of us and Paul Pook who is our fitness coach and it just was it was fantastic because I I, look I'll say it this is why there's a bromance is I learned so much from this kid I had worked before I played rugby. Here was a guy that this was going to be his job for the foreseeable future. This is what he wanted to do. This is what he was going to do. Um, it was an incredibly different perspective and from the one I had. And I, I have to say I got a bit of the joy of the game back because I was looking at this guy who was only starting and his energy was infectious. And look, I always have a lot of energy, but it's... I can get grumpy too, but I I just thought it was like we ended up having an awful lot of crack with it. It was just it was one of those lovely kind of moments in time that doesn't happen very often that you because normally if the pressure of a game that that kind of can impact on on the start of a relationship or something like that. We didn't because we were both injured. So we got to know each other really
0: well. Both incredibly Egypt. childish. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Egypt, you know.
7: Totally. But I, I think you're right, Woody, because rugby can be really cyclical. You know, you prepare for a game every single Saturday, you review it, you get onto the training pitch. And then you work in your unit. So there isn't, you don't really cross-pollinate between forwards and backs all that much. So for me to be kind of getting to know a hooker, that shouldn't have happened. I should have been getting to know the likes of your Dan Lugas and your Rob Jules of this world. But I was getting to learn and understand from from the world's best player. And and also for me, you know, I think most youngsters probably be able to relate to this. Like when you're excelling at school, you, you think you're, the much nuts you really do you think hey now, now i've got a premiership contract and hey i've got initials on my gear and everything else but then you get very grounded when you step into a high performing environment like that and i'll tell you what i mean there was lots of good players in that squad you had the likes of jason leonard and actually it's funny because all my schoolmates would ask me so what's this one like what's that one like and with jason all I could say was I have never seen a bigger set of balls on any man than I've seen on Jason Leonard, which probably surprised them. And I think they were expected, you know, talking about, hey, this guy played for England over 100 times whatever. But that was my that was my first takeaway. But what, what Woody did was something which I deeply value, um, was that you did not have to put your arm around me. You know, you're the best player in the world. You just come off a line store. And now you've got this kind of spotty, rough and ready, overly keen rugby athlete that was trying to make it in rugby. And I I say to you all the time, Woody, but I I genuinely never forget it. I'll never forget it because there was other guys that perhaps should have taken on the role that you did, but didn't. And you chose to do it. You know, I I really appreciate you not because of the player that you, that you were, but it's more the, the, the human that you were. And, uh, and the impact and influence that you had on me
1: I don't know what to I don't know what to say to that I I, I'm as low, I look it's lovely and we I, I know this is a, this isn't a surprise we've had this discussion before and there were guys I didn't do that with and there are guys that that I should have done it with as well it becomes it becomes interesting because when you when you hold up that mirror and you try and say, well why didn't I do that with everybody I think it does come down to opportunity. It comes down to a moment in time as well. And I think it comes down to different personalities. I mean, in fairness, you go, you were hard not to like. And to have time for people is just, is one of the rarities. And when you when we go back now and look at the amount of games that were played, it, it was funny. My time in Quinns was interesting. I made a mistake. I was captain of Quinns in 97, 98. And in retrospect, it was a mistake because... I was captain of Ireland at the same time and I, it was too much. And I, I said I'd never do that again afterwards. Uh, I, I played 35 or six games that season, maybe more, and captain for all of them. And it just was, you've no time at all. And actually, that's one of the things of the game. I think we we do need to remember that young guys that come in through in through it need a helping hand to do it.
7: I know it might be embarrassing for you, uncomfortable to hear, but you are one of the true greats. You, you just are. You just are. And I think people look at you through the lens of what you did on the pitch. And there's lots of things you taught me. I was never a leader. I never captained a side. But... When you've got really strong leaders, it's very easy to be a good follower and you led by your passion, your intensity and just what you delivered on the pitch. Whatever you said, or whatever you asked of anyone else, you're willing to do it yourself. Once again, Woody, thank you. Thank you for everything.
0: Oh, that's a great way to finish it, Hugo. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate that. Take care of yourself, buddy. See you Sunday. See you Sunday. I'm on takeout, Judy. Shut up. Get out of here. Thanks, (laughs) Hugo. Woody, I want to stay with you in London because it's the location for one of the greatest, one of my favourite stories about you and one of your your bromance buddies, Eddie Jordan, the Formula One Supremo, obviously team owner. And um, I know you had a great day out. But I don't want to tell the story. I want Eddie Jordan to tell the story. So let's get Eddie Jordan on the phone because um, <laughs> when you say. I'm, nervous saying, about
1: I'm oh, really nervous Lord. about this one once you have Eddie on. my oh, God my words. almighty that's... I
0: know. I know. I love, to, I love to keep an eye on him. Eddie. Eddie, it's <laughs> Craig here. How are you? How are you, Craig? There's that great story you tell about yourself and Woody going to 10 Downing Street. And that's your job today. Tell us that tale. It's a great story.
8: That's genuine too. Nice. I want to say to him, what's it like being his last birthday in his 40s? I mean, 49 gone 50... He's an old man now. Does he know that? He's got the slippers.
1: I'm finally beginning to grow into the the way I've looked for the last 30 years. I'm kind of
8: happy enough, (laughs) actually. I I thought you were going to say maturity. That'll never happen, believe me. (laughs) No, 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 (laughs) maturity. Back to Downing Street. I think it was an Irish evening. I can't really recall. Our memory banks are going a little wobbly these days. But anyway, there was Ken Doherty who grew up with me in, in Renlade in Dublin. And I was always a big fan of Ken. And, and then this intruder came along, Woody, and the three of us abandoned ourselves and we were slurping down lots of vino because it was free and we decided to escape into the side room because it was altogether far too posh for us in number 10. And there we were, drinking our heads off, laughing our backsides off. It was hilarious. We were re-encountering all sorts of different stories in our different sport. Anyway, hours and days and minutes seemed to, to, to go by very quickly. And when we decided I think we better head home here, lads, I don't know, or go back into the party. When we went back into the party, it was absolutely blank dark. There was no one there. Everyone had left and left <laughs> us there holding the can. And we happened to make our way out of 10 Downing Street. I didn't see a security guard to save my life. I was trying to find my coat and my jacket um, and because that's my total possessions. And there was Woody trying to act as the saviour of all saviours and out we went. But it was a very, very nice evening, I have to say.
0: Oh, hang on, hang on. Let me get my head round this. You're in Downing Street. Everybody, including the Prime Minister, has gone home and there's just three Irish people in Downing Street with the doors locked and you had the run of the place.
1: And we left ourselves out, um, which made us extraordinary. It, um, so we were the we only did. three Irish guys in the place, I think, if I remember rightly, Eddie.
8: The constable at the door was kind of confused when the door opened and, and three musketeers <laughs> came out the door and we were saying, hey, "Good night, there, see you later.
0: Tell me about Woody being your bouncer. Did you hire him as your bouncer, your security guard?
8: The great thing about Woody, he loves stardom. I, I, did you know that? He loved singing. And when we had Bimbar Fury and we had Davy Spadane, he was great to sing those Irish Kamalia songs. So he was in a very posh place in Heidelberg, um, just outside where we were doing the Grand Prix. And I don't know, at the time, I had just won a couple of Grand Prix's with, with friends and, and had the terrible news that I had to tell him that I was about to sack him or that I had sacked him because I needed to keep the engines with Honda and they were insisting that I had this kid called Takuma Sato, who made a personal vendetta to try and bankrupt me, he crashed that many cars. But anyway, <laughs> quite apart from all of that, Woody arrives and, you know, we're enjoying the, the Grand Prix. Hockenheim is a huge, spectacular event, 120, 130,000 people there. But little did I know when I see all these F-words across in the, in the stands, they were calling me F-this and F-that. They didn't like me, I have to tell you. Um, my reputation had taken a bit of a hit and they wanted to kill me. And I didn't realise this was actually as obvious as it was until I decided that we were leaving the track after the race. And and, and there was these baying people. uh, Now I understand what it's like to protest because these guys really wanted my blood. And um, so Woody was beside me and they all thought he was my bodyguard. So as we got in the van to leave the track to go to try and nick in the back way to get a helicopter, they the band from one side to the other and we're like in a rocking chair except this was real motion and real time and um was i frightened well i would got woody there not that that made any difference yes i was frightened because i thought these people wanted to batter us but anyway i told the driver go just drive through them get anywhere get out of here and we got into a helicopter but there was a nice ending to this we got into the helicopter despite all this got marauding going on, and then into a small plane. And we decided, instead of stopping off in England, we decided to go straight to Galway. The Galway races, were the next day, I had a horse running called Rostoprovich with uh, Mouse Morris. Uh, and Woody and I and a couple of other pals, we went to Mourn's of the Weir. We had the drink of a lifetime the next day, And um, as everybody does. And we appeared on RGE on the 6 o'clock news, absolutely battered. I do not remember even making any comment to the person with a microphone and neither does Woody, even though he might claim he did. Neither of us were able to stand up, but it was very funny, I have to say. It's great moments I've had with him. Oh, lovely!
1: Oh my God. Uh, that, and that is disturbingly true. And it was the week before I got married and I had to ring my wife to say I wasn't uh, going to help with the arrangements for the wedding. I was only just coming back from the 2001 lines. And yeah, over my only time ever at the Galway races, I flew in with Eddie. I mean, talk about living the high life. And it was about as funny as it was. And yeah, both of us interviewed on the 61 News giggling uncontrollably again. So we started the first story with us laughing. We ended with that one laughing as well. I look for all the years because Um, We cross paths often and there's just a bit of fun always there, you know there's always a a really good laugh
0: That does sound like the greatest night out ever I have to say lads I'm just disappointed we couldn't have been there for that to witness that Eddie, thanks so much Enjoy the season ahead Great Thanks thanks, thanks for your time Thanks for sharing all that All the best
8: Uh, I love that that man you're talking to so look after him cuddle him up and care for him (laughs) I will indeed uh, Some very special memories
1: Thanks EJ, bye He he doesn't (laughs) quiet him down he doesn't call Not at then. all. I couldn't oh, we couldn't well. get it couldn't get a word in. I was gonna I was gonna say a story. He he asked me once, which was the this funny of all time, would I help him? Would I go to um would I go to the launch of his Grand Prix so, his car? So I went down to the Albert Hall, I thought twenty-four or twenty-five, I'd say. And I went down to in a pair of shorts, because I had just come from training and i showered, but it was it was roasting hot. And I stood up at the back and watched it and uh, one of the guys that was there with us said, look, Eddie, love if you'd come for lunch. And I said, we're in Knightsbridge. I'm not going for lunch. He said, no, it's a very relaxed place. So I went into this place anyway, which was silver service. And I'm in a pair of shorts and a T-shirt. And three Japanese guys, three, um, Eddie, myself and one of his engineers. And it then became a conversation where every question was directed to me. Of which I had no answer for any of the questions. I deferred them to the two lads, and it was a negotiation for Honda engines. <laughs> and like, but of course, there was no explanation of that before, during, or afterwards. But he got a three-year deal out of it. So he's—I uh, still reckon he owes me a commission. But. Oh my word!
0: Great fella. I, I want to kind of wrap up everything, and I want to overview you with two very, very important people. A, your wife Nicola, who I'm thinking is sitting alongside you. Is she is Nicola there? She is. She is. Yeah. And uh, hiya, Nicola. How you doing? And um, an old pal of yours, Moss Rowan. So let's get Moss on the phone. Oh, hang on. There's it. Hiya, Moss. How are you? It's Craig Doyle here. How are you?
4: How are you doing, Craig?
0: I'm in good form and in great form because I've been with your old pal, Keith Wood, for the past hour or so, having great chats. Oh. Nick Nicola's on the phone as oh, well, okay. uh, so we've we've all the important people in his life on the phone at the moment. Moss, tell me, how do you yeah. guys know each other? What's your relationship?
4: When his father came to Killaloo first, we had a rugby club in Killaloo and he came to coach us and became great friends with his father and then the family, all the family, his mother and all, and his sisters and brothers, but Keith, my first memories of Keith, I, I, I never saw him in nappies, like, but I, he was about 12, 12 to 14. And uh, we were coming up the street, four of us, and we were heading to Reddens for lunch. But Keith was out in the footpath, picking a ball up against the wall. And uh, at main, main Street and Killua up the hill. But we thought like, he'd move out of our way and pass, but that wasn't happening. Like He didn't do that. So we waited for a few seconds, thinking he'd lose control of the ball. That didn't happen either. So we had to go out onto the street, come in around the traffic, and when we got back in the footpath, I looked back and Keith was gone. So this was like he gave himself a test and he wasn't going to be bullied by us. wasn't going to be showed his confidence, his skill, his guts, cockiness, I suppose. And uh, he was fearless.
0: Do you remember that day, Woody?
1: No, I don't. And I don't know that story, Moss. I think that's... I think yeah, that's I didn't mad. tell you. I... I <laughs> No, no, I, I I like it. I think it's I think it's it's really it's really interesting, you know. Oh,
0: yeah. Nicola, tell me this. So Keith has moved over to England and he's a pro rugby player. How did you guys meet? Was it somewhere beautiful and glamorous?
9: Oh gosh, yes. Very glamorous, wasn't it, Keith? <laughs> <laughs> it, it was that <laughs> absolute den of a place called the Clapham Grand which no. I hope lots of people listening to this don't know because I've, never awful, I've never been I've never been because it was awful but it was one of my favourite places to go on a Saturday night where Dr Glitz was playing with his big Afro wig on and 70s music and yeah that's where we actually I spotted his bald head across the dance floor why he was on the dance floor I don't know because ever since then he's never gone near a the dance sense, floor just in case yeah, that's where I first met uh, met Keith.
0: Any Irish person, certainly who's ever been to London, will have been to the Clapham Ground. I've been there myself. Yeah, yeah. it's quite quite the spot. Not a romantic setting, but he spotted you Not across at the, the dance. You spotted Nicola, beautiful Nicola, across the dance floor. No, you?
9: no, no. I spotted but him. You spotted I annoyed him. him. You yeah, spotted I annoyed beautiful him Keith for the rest of the night. Yeah, <laughs> I actually annoyed him so much. <laughs> he wasn't very nice to me. The first words to him weren't very pleasant, and I can't repeat them. So um, <laughs> I
0: think you should. Yeah.
9: That's how it all no, starts. Can. I can't repeat
0: them. Show you know
1: these lovely stories that people have when they first met and they can tell that story to their kids? Yeah, we no. don't We don't tell that story. No,
9: our kids don't know that yeah. story.
1: So I have a big soft spot for London because it was the place where we met, not for the Clapham Ground, I have to say. <laughs> but, uh, and, look, and it was, and so, and we're back here in Killaloo, which is kind of, it's kind of mad to think that we're back. And I'd never any intention of going back. My intention was to stay in London. And we we loved living in London. And it was, we, we kind of finally decided to come back because we've, we have three sons and we said we'd give them a taste of, of Ireland. And uh, for a variety of reasons,
0: we decided that this is where we're going to stay. And what was bigger, your love of London or your love of belly buttons?
1: Well, belly buttons was <laughs> the introduction. That was definitely part of it. I mean, that, the lines video is, was my my dying love for pregnant women and belly buttons. And uh, and someone said to me, do you like pregnant women's belly buttons? I said, no, you have to actually hear what I said. And so belly buttons were to the fore, definitely, um, and it became part of a thing for a while. It's something I'm still quite comfortable with. Maybe my <laughs> fetish, but uh, I, look, I can't. Let's not de- let's not deny it, Craig. You know, let's, uh, let's
0: were, you aware, were you were you wear this Nicola, this belly button thing? <laughs> I I was, and
9: that was that was actually. I've a lot to thank that 97 Lions video for because if it hadn't have been for that Lions video, I wouldn't have gone up and annoyed him and asked him to kiss my belly button, <laughs> which he actually didn't do. So, so I'm very fond of that 97 okay. Lions tour as well because I wouldn't have met Keith otherwise. <laughs> my
6: word.
0: Yeah. Nicola and Moss to round a, a, all this fabulous story up um, and it was such a significant moment when Keith retired because he was such a star in the game at that time and I think there was genuine shock I think a lot of people felt it might be coming but he was he was still young enough and his retirement was was one of the first retirements that really made all the front pages I think in the newspapers certainly in Ireland and across the water you were both there for that Nicola uh, and Moss and you both have different views on it and and different stories attached to us so, so Moss I'll let you start and Nicola you were up in the stands while Mossy was in the room. I'll let you both tell your stories. Mossy, y- your experience first of all of that day.
4: Myself and my son, he was 10 at the time and he was rugby mad. So we had to get to the hotel before the match to see him all getting onto the bus even. So we lined up and there was a lot of people there now that they keep. you're going to the, that match, to the French match. And uh, we were there and uh, Anthony Foley came out first, gave us a nod. And Keith was coming along then like, and Keith looked straight at me, but he looked straight through me. I know he didn't see me. So he was going to war, like he had a different focus. And the match didn't go so well. We came back, but we came back that night, myself and my son and a couple of other people. And we went to the Holiday Inn and we were was mobbed with people. There was a lot of people there. And we stood on the escalator steps where we could get a view. Or they were in a private function room. So we saw all the players coming in and out. Anthony Foley arrived. And Anthony came over to us and signed an autograph for us and chatting away with us for a couple of minutes and went back in. So I thought this was the end, but now I said to my young uncle, I said, come on, Ben, no, we've, we've enough done. No, he wouldn't, he wouldn't go there. He said, no, we've see the rest of them. And uh, so a couple of minutes later, Anthony arrived back out again. This time, talking to the security man, took down a barrier and a bit of tape and ushered the tree, told us we were coming in. So when we went to the function room, met Keith inside, Keith and himself attached the plan that we'd, we were coming in and uh, we met Keith inside. Keith introduced us to everybody in the room, I'd say. Stayed with us in every conversation. And I thought to myself, Jesus, surely this man has something better to do now than be talking to us here. But we never left our sides inside for about an hour. We knew everybody and were comfortable with everyone. And like, it was like being in heaven, like for us, well, without the dying part. I never forget it. Like it was the highlight of our life, probably the worst, the saddest day in your life, Keith. But God, it was the best day of our lives, in sporting memory and probably the saddest day of yours because it was the last, last game of rugby. Had
0: you announced your retirement in that room, Keith?
1: Well, I, I, what I had done was I'd said something on RT afterwards the, the, when it, it finished because I just, because I was asked a question and I, and I said it. And they'd been kind of annoying me for the, the, in the press conferences. Was I going to retire after the World Cup? And I hadn't really decided, but I decided certain things. But uh, if, I, if I go back to that game, I only really realized with about 10 minutes to go that I was retiring because I'd expected us to win that day. So I wasn't retiring that day. It hadn't even entered my mind. So for the last 10 minutes, I said, God, I better, uh, you know, we're being well beaten. I better, this is the last 10 minutes, I'm going to play rugby. And and I remember thinking about it and, I, and coming off the field and myself and Fabian Galtier, who I, I get on very well with and like, and um, I, I, he, he gave me a hug afterwards and I kind of let him go. And I, end, I ended up going back for a second bite almost, you know, and uh, I just said, it was either he or me. Uh, on that day we're going to retire so I said something but I hadn't said anything to the squad and it was in the team room I think we ended up with a a microphone and um, Eddie was saying thank you to everybody and to all the, the the wives and all the kids and everybody who was there and all the support that everybody had given us to be there and asked me up to say a few words that's what my memory of it is anyway and and I only kind of said it to the guys then I it to the room
0: then. And were they surprised by it?
9: They were, absolutely. I will never forget Marcus Horan was standing next to me when Keith had the microphone at the front of the room. And Marcus, he kind of doubled, he double took and he looked at me with his mouth open and then looked back at Keith at the front of the room and then looked back at me and went, no, no. Did he just... No, please tell me he didn't just say. Did he just say he's retiring? <laughs> and I said and I had tears pour, pouring down my face then again because I'd already been crying at the end of, when the whistle went um at the end of the match. And uh yeah, so the tears are pouring down my face again because I just thought that was it. We were never going to see Keith on the rugby field again and and which I was devastated about, but I knew when he has made a decision that that's it and there's no going back. But the whole room just literally were gobsmacked. They had no idea this was coming. So, yeah, it was a, it was an emotional, um, very emotional time in the room. But it was, uh, I, like I say, it was his decision and... When, it, when that's made, it's made and there's no going back.
0: You know, sometimes you can mark a career as you look back, as we have done now, by the trophies you've collected. But Woody, when I look back and hear your stories, it's the friends, mm-hmm. incredible friends and memories you've collected. And, and I think that just shows what an incredible career you've had, what a great life you've had and continue having with your wonderful family and friends around you. This has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much to all of you for joining us on this one, Woody. I hope you enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Craig. It's a, a, a little bit, uh, almost too sweet. I, I was expecting more of a hazing, so I'm, uh, I've am blushed a few times today.
0: Well, we don't tell people what to sorry, say. Sorry, Craig. And sorry, Mossy, yeah. You're going to get stuck in now at the end, oh, Mossy. There's
4: one word I would describe Keith, and that would be loyalty. He's absolutely loyalty all day long to his family, to his friends, to his teammates. If you're on... Each team, he'll back you. He'll back you all day, yeah.
0: all day. Team Wood, not a bad place he to would. be. Woody, we don't just, we don't ask people to, to go a certain way with these chats. They speak from their heart and and from you know from their memory and uh, so what they say is how they feel. So I'm afraid there wasn't bad stuff in there for you, all good stuff. But that's that's the mark you've left on people. So look, thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely brilliant to listen to Nicola. Thank you very much. Keep an eye on that big child there, and. Um, and <laughs> we'll see you all soon cheers Woody thanks so much brilliant thanks see you, Craig. Craig
9: see you Keith see you Nicholas. thanks Craig bye see you Moss.
0: bye well, there you go. Another fascinating journey into someone's life and times through their friends and all their colleagues and, and and former playing colleagues too. I hope you enjoyed it. You've been listening to The Contact Book. Don't forget, you can subscribe, listen to the other brilliant interviews, the likes of Brian Habana, Brian O'Driscoll, Maggie Alfonsi, Sean Fitzpatrick, David Pocock to name but a few. Spread the word of The Contact Book and please do let us know how you feel about the show. Today's show was produced by Keith Doyle for Three Rock Productions and co-produced by Brian O'Driscoll all made for Audi. Thank you so much for your time and we'll see you soon.